You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies and actors. Words. Better shake the booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and this episode is hosted by Ryan. We are pleased to present to you two segments in this episode. Our first segment features Burgundy Baker, who is on the Showtime series, The Shy. And in our second segment, we have Raven Mija Williams, who is a descendant of the tragic incident that happened in 1921 during the Tulsa massacre. And she is going to talk to us about a new two-part documentary on OWN TV called The Legacy of Black Wall Street. Starting with Burgundy, Burgundy Baker is a multi-talented actress that sets herself apart from her brave and intuitive performances, portraying an array of complex and powerful characters that grow beyond her career in TV and film. She is recently seen reprising her role in the third season of the Showtime hit series, The Shy. Created by Lena Waithe, the series follows life in a neighborhood in the south side of Chicago. In our second segment, we chat with Raven Mija Williams to talk about the two-part documentary, The Legacy of Black Wall Street. The second part airs June 8th on OWN TV about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre that destroyed the 36-block booming business epicenter. The commemorative documentary special shifts the narrative from the massacre itself to amplify the voices of those black pioneers that went on to the West to build their American dream, weaving their stories with inspiring modern day black pioneers now who continue the path to healing and rebuilding the rise of the black community who present Occupy Greenwood. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and I got one question for you guys. Have you been watching The Shy? And if you haven't, you better pause us right now. Go watch the three seasons. Come back for season four because we're ready for this roller coaster. And I am so excited today because I went on an emotional roller coaster with this one character last season. I went from Keisha, girl, you better run to Keisha, girl, you need to hit him again just to make sure so you can get away. If you guys were catching up with me watching the last season. So I am with Burgundy Baker, who brings Keisha to the screen and has us on the edge of the seat. Hi, Burgundy. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Uh, thank you again for joining me. Um, I want to take you back to the beginning. Before we dive into Keisha here, you're a graduate of Harvard University or Howard University, uh, the theater program. What was your draw? Like, what was it about art and acting that pulled you in? Oh my goodness. Okay. So my aunt, her name is Bobby Baker. She's an actress. Um, she went to Juilliard and we're really close in age. So she, we really grew up like sisters 
And I would go up to New York every year to watch her student showcases and plays and her cabarets and all of that. And so I was kind of always around it and always in the theater because of her. And that was it really just watching her and growing up and seeing how she became an actress and watching her plays is just really, really inspiring. I also have a huge family and everybody in my family does something, dance, sing, write, act. So I've just always been around it. Now, since you did musical, do you have a favorite musical? Mm, I really like Color Purple. Okay, yeah. That's one, that's yep. one of my top favorites. Yeah, you got to go with that. That's a classic. All right, listen, we got to get into Keisha because, girl, you were acting your butt off in this series because <laughs> I am on my edge of my seat. I'm so nervous for Keisha, like, all the time. I'm rooting for another time. The other time I'm worried. I'm like, is she going to be okay? Is she going to make it through? Because you never know on the shy. So for um, you, what is your favorite part about playing Keisha? What do you love going into season four? I love her strength. I love her strength. I feel like being a young black woman, like that, that weird space between being a child and being an adult, we don't really get to explore that enough on TV. It's such an important stage and such a critical time in our lives as women. I love that the shy is showing that like middle area, that like kind of gray area you go through when you're not a child anymore, but you're not a woman yet. I think it's just such a critical time and she's just pushing through it. She's so strong. It's definitely one of my favorite things about her. Yeah. And it's just, and it's like, tell me about, because you're a mom as well, right? Mm-hmm. What was it for you? Like last season, I don't have kids, but I just, it was like some moments where I were, I was hurting for you just to be able to see what you're going through, especially if you're talking about, um, uh, just you know black women like you said and just the representation to be able to see this dynamic character that you're playing here but what was it for you were there were there moments where on set you had to take pauses because maybe a scene was too intense or you wanted to you know break away from it a little bit then get back into character oh my gosh yes definitely definitely moments where I had to take some pauses needed some extra time but a a lot of moments where I used that and I just went into the scene with all my feelings and all my thoughts and like you said, I'm a mom, so sometimes I will replace the scenarios and think, like, how do these parents feel? Like, what if Keisha was my daughter? What if this is my child? Because at the time, there was, like, a four-year-old missing, and my daughter was five. So just seeing that pop up on my phone and replacing wow, her face with yeah. my daughter's face, that was some, it was really, really heavy, and it's really, really real. Yeah, well, you made. I'm telling you, we were screaming at the at the TV because you made us feel that. That's how profit. It was crazy last season. I'm like, the shot makes you nervous, and you also love it because you never know what you, what's going to happen to your character. Do you guys? Yeah. Do you feel like that when you get the script? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's like, oh my god, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's just, it's a beautiful thing. It's really an honor to be a part of and to tell that story in this moment of time. Now, another another thing you never know what's going to happen is when you get Emma and Keisha together. So what is that like when you playing with uh, Jacob Lattimore? And I feel like I feel like now you're kind of his counsel going into this into this new season from what I've seen so far. So how's that been know, to play with him and change up the dynamic? It's been fun. I, I, li- I love where they took it. I thought it was just so realistic that like there's always that one guy like y'all try it. And then it's just like, nah, this ain't going to work. But you find a beautiful friendship 
out of it. I feel like we all have like that person. And I mean, there are some people that like DM me or leave comments and like, y'all should get back together. They should put y'all back together. I'm like, no, they're just good friends. I think Keisha had, has always been just like a little like, even when she was in it with him, she was just a little over it. Right, <laughs> even exactly. Even was like, <laughs> even when she was his girl, she was just like, come on, get it together. But they're great friends and they're growing together. They're growing up together, even though they're not together. Yeah, I want to ask you, and I know you guys can't say too much and uh, maybe tease it a little bit for episode three is where we're um, at coming up here um, by the time this mm-hmm. episode is released. What um, you had a, in a clip that they put out, you have a killer line where you said, if a black woman is quiet, you should be scared when you talk mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. So what else can you tease? I just, I'm telling y'all, I love every scene with you guys because I feel like you are always trying to help put him in his place because we never know what Emily's <laughs> going to come out with next. What, um, can you tease anything about that episode or like, what's, what's, what is this like part two of another intense uh emotional roller coaster going down I, I say it is an emotional roller coaster I think he is growing up and he cannot be the same image that we've always seen he's gonna have to make a decision on how he's gonna go about that oh boy we imminent his decisions well we can't we can't yeah. wait to check that one out <laughs> Um, okay, so I want to ask you too. Another uh, relationship that was very interesting to watch, especially for siblings, because I have a sister. Me and her sit down and watch it every week. But um, Keisha and Kevin, do we get to mm-hmm. kind of see them have their moment where they kind of talk a little bit about what happened last season, or are they kind of moving past that because they kind of got their own little personal things going on? They'll talk a little bit. They'll talk a little bit. I mean, I feel like we always see special moments with Keisha and Kevin, right? And they're both really, really strong and low key hardcore. Like they've uh-huh, just, they've uh-huh. been taking the punches of life and they've been like rolling with it. And I think in a way that we sort of do sometimes we'll, we'll touch on things and we'll talk about things and it might, everything might not be said, but we'll take a moment, you know, we'll, we'll have our moment. And so um, we'll touch on it. They'll touch on it. Yeah, I love they there's some they're very much gangster OGs. They take it, they take it. Cause I love when he went after to find you in the beginning. He was not oh, playing yeah. games. Oh yeah. Kevin was like, sure. I'm about to find Keisha and bring her home. Yeah, that's that's another one of my favorite uh parts of playing Keisha is the relationship with Kevin. It's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful to watch this brother and sister uh protect each other and love each other and do the best they can. It's I love it. Yeah, and nobody knows how to pressure buttons like a sibling either. So that's also fun to watch on camera. Oh, yeah, he does it in real life, too. Like, it's not just when the camera's on. When the camera's off, he he picks on me. I pick on him. We argue about the dumbest things. I look back, I'm like, why are we even arguing <laughs> about that? So it's, it's definitely some real brother-sister love in there. Yeah, I was going to ask you, too, about that. And you and the and the other cast uh, castmates on here, because you guys have such intense, heavy topics. Is there a lot of playfulness behind the scenes and on set and everything? Oh, for, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, me, Actually, me and Hannah, the character who plays Tiff, we were just talking about this the other day. It's just a blessing to be on a show where you get along with all your castmates and you have people like close in age. And, you know, we're all a part of the same culture. So we just... We just rock with each other really, really heavily. Um, Tyla, I talk to her on the phone like every day. She's a, a role model. She gives me advice. She gives, I talk to her about acting, talk to her about life, everything. It's, it's great. And I and I love to. I, speaking of Tyler, by the way, um, playing um, Keisha's mom here, uh, playing Nina. You guys have these looks that you give each other 
so far that we see throughout the season is there going to be like a really do we are we going to get like a really intense moment where they kind of discuss things because you know you know now it's not just about you know Keisha being her daughter she's becoming a mom as well or you know going through a different situation right now yeah there'll be some intense moments you know Keisha doesn't really she's never really held back how she feels or what she thinks you know and I think even when it comes to her mom in situations where you think she would kind of like just keep it kind of low key. No, Keisha has always been very, you know, forward. And so we'll see some moments where it's like, oh, okay, Nina got Nina got a woman on her hands now. She got a little woman in the house now. <laughs> yeah, we look forward to that. Yeah, Keisha never pulls back the punches, which I think is so entertaining um, to watch about her. Is that one of the things, is that kind of cool for you to play? Is it, because um, talking to you right now, you seem very low key, but it might be the time of day that we're talking. So I'm wondering if you get to switch it up playing Keisha on set. Is that a is that a difference in there for you, or is it it's just kind of about the same? Oh yeah, I definitely get to switch it up. <laughs> I definitely get to switch it up. <laughs> she's spicy. She's spicy. Even like from season one, like the hair and her clothes. I remember these little booty shorts she had on. I was like, oh yes, I'm I'm gonna live in this character. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of living too and being people being feisty, okay, we see her, um, I, another moment I wanted to ask you about, we see her working, um, you know, of course she doesn't get, you know, she's not going the, co- the typical college route if that's something in her future, so she's working right now. I'm trying to figure out if she's the only employee in the store she's working in, because the lady is like asking her 20 questions. <laughs> it looks like it, right? She has Keisha doing everything. She's all on Keisha's back. Um, but she's not the only employee in the store and I'm not going to spill no tea just because I can't, but we'll, we'll see another employee. Y'all just wait. We'll see another one. pop. Please let there be another employee. Cause I was like, Keisha was just trying to take a break (laughs) on the counter. We don't got to do all that. We don't have to do all that. (laughs) I know. All right. So cool. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, I'm hyped for somebody else to get in there. Cause I feel so bad for Keisha. I was like, come on now. You could, you could ease up a little bit. I was like, is she the only one working? But anyway, we're going to move past it. We're going to let it go till we see the other employee. <laughs> All right. So as we kind of wrap here, I want to ask you about, um, what is it like then? What's the new normal on set right now? Cause you guys are still filming, right? Yes, we are. So are you, are you still, is it still like tough regulations? Are you guys still trying to figure it out? How's, how's set life? Yeah, they're tough. They're tough. Um, we, of course, we always have to wear our masks unless, you know, we're shooting the moment that's going to be shown on TV. Even when we rehearse, we have to wear a mask. We have to have some distance between our chairs, which is the worst part. But, you know, we still look across over each other, make jokes, laugh, text <laughs> from across the room, laugh out loud, all that stuff. Um, so we're making it work. Um, you know, there's no way of just like completely shutting relationships down and not talking you know what I mean so we, we're just making it work the safe the safest way that we can yeah absolutely we appreciate you guys making it work and I'm so hyped uh, we are two episodes in get ready to come up on three of season four I cannot wait to see the roller coaster we're going to be on Burgundy thank you so much again thank you for having me and thank you for watching and you guys, you guys go watch now, right? Get ready for the season four, you guys. Get ready for episode three. Check it out. Showtime. And I will talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye-bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast will return in just a moment. I have to tell you about something I have found that every single Star Wars fan has to have. I think needs to have, in fact. It's from Enso Rings, an industry leader in silicone rings. 
They have teamed up with Star Wars to make these amazing rings that are instant collector's items that you have to check out. And this is the perfect gift for Father's Day, which is right around the corner, or for any Star Wars fan in your life. The Star Wars collection from Enso Rings is really super cool. I actually just got these rings the other day. My favorite, of course, is Grogu. It's so cute, it's adorable. I love the color, it's this iridescent pale green color with these cute white undertones. And I think Star Wars fans are gonna love this. It makes a great fashion accessory. Hey, listen, if you want a Star Wars theme wedding, use this as a wedding band. I think it's absolutely fabulous. The rings from Enso Rings are high quality, 100% silicone. They're made in the USA at their facility in Utah. And they're perfect for wearing as a high quality wedding ring replacement or a wedding ring. I don't see anything wrong with that. A fashion accessory or just to show your love for Star Wars. The Star Wars collection from Enzo Rings has six rings each that represent a character. The Mandalorian, Darth Vader, Grogu, R2-D2, C-3PO, and Stormtrooper. You can buy them individually or together in a limited edition collector's box. So don't wait. Order Enzo Rings today for the Star Wars fans in your life, including yourself. Go to EnsoRings.com today. That's E-N-S-O rings.com and get free shipping with the code Star Wars. That's Enso rings.com. Earning a degree opens up doors to a variety of exciting careers and possibilities for your future. Complete your degree online with Oregon State University eCampus, an innovative provider of online education. Renowned for its expertise in delivering more than 80 degree programs to students around the world. At OSU, gain skills that are in demand in a variety of industries, from computer science and public health to business and natural resources. Just ask Caitlin Brooks, who earned her business administration degree online and in the process gain the skills, and develop the passion to launch her own fitness apparel brand. See for yourself why Oregon State eCampus is ranked number four in the nation for online education by U.S. News and World Report. Plus, at OSU, all online programs and classes are developed by the same world-class faculty who teach on campus. Take the next step to an even brighter future by earning your degree online. Visit ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash nerds to learn more. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash nerds. Welcome to the Black Girl Nurse Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan. And you know, right now in the country, in the world, I feel like we're going through a little bit of a history lesson. If you've been watching the headlines, if you've been watching the news, there's been a lot of conversation about the 1921 Tulsa uh, race massacre. And there's a lot of facts, a lot of um, black pioneers that, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just were a race because they didn't want us to know or it's just some facts that aren't always shared. So what I found interesting is recently on release to commemorate and I want to say to educate as well for the 100th year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, our two part documentary 
part one is already out now released january 1st and it is titled the legacy of black wall street and it's putting a spotlight on these black pioneers and not only do you have these um iconic historians and professors doing telling the story you also have the descendants which i think is so interesting which brings me to my guest today which it is a pleasure to welcome raven maja williams she is a media entrepreneur and descendant of survivor uh aj smither uh smitherman let me make sure i get that right because we need to find out about aj smitherman he might have knew about black twitter <laughs> so you know I, I had to put that out there if you guys don't know who it is we're going to give you a background on it but raven thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate your time Thank you for having us. When I say us, it's because I'm speaking on behalf of my family. Um, we have a lot of descendants uh, of AJ Smitherman and our big mommy, who I always love to give shots out to, Ollie B. Murphy, who was his wife. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So I am the spokesperson for a very large clan. Yes. And I love that. I think it's so just so dope how they have the descendants doing this, um, which is so cool. So interesting to hear you guys perspectives um can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved and what was that like for you to kind of dive into this you know this this you know, I don't know if it was new facts for you it definitely felt new to me a lot of the facts that were being shared well I've you know it's interesting because I am a descendant um and that is definitely an accurate uh description however I'm also a subject matter expert that has been studying this historically um, and known about it my whole life, but also studying it for, you know, very diligently um, for seven years. So I have been excavating the story and um, I, I probably as a descendant have one of the most vested interests in making sure we get it right. Um, yes. So I will say that just to clarify, because there's a lot of people claiming their subject matter expertise. And all I keep hearing out of a lot of those people is a bunch of uh, fake news sometimes or false, just inaccurate information. And they're spreading a false narrative. So I'm kind of really here to set the record straight because the record is not straight at this point. And truthfully, our family is really, uh, in terms of AJ Smitherman's story, the only people um, qualified to give the authorized version of the story. So pretty much everything has been unauthorized. Um, the one exception to that so far has been this project that I've done with OWN um, because I am a consulting producer on that, in that story, you know, with that story and worked very closely with the director to make sure that at least, you know, the component uh, about my great grandfather's participation in things was accurate. And I can tell you right now, having seen some of the other um, presentations of this story, that there is just flat out false information. And it will be, you know, it is part of the mission of the AJ Smitherman Foundation to set the record straight. Yeah, and I like how you said set the record straight. And um, I appreciate that because um, what I love about what this documentary does to showing how skilled, driven, brilliant Black people are, but also you have proof of that. And like you said, being able to actually get the facts straight and talk to descendants, talk to professors, you know, where it's actually authenticated that they know exactly what they're talking about. Because there are so many, there's constant barriers and constant attempts to black, to a block, excuse me, the success of black people. So it's very important that you talk about how, you know, authentication and getting facts straight. Especially when I have read and seen now um, on screen, just flat out 
misinformation. Um, right. Regard and especially with regard to my ancestors. Um, so I'm not here to call out names at this specific moment. Um, right. And not and when I say names, I just mean names of projects and details. But I'm taking notes, and there will definitely be a time, just like my great grandfather would have done publishing in his paper, where um, those facts are corrected on a public record. Right. And let's get into here, since we mentioned him a bunch of times, I was just so fascinated by A.J. Smitherman's story. Um, you talk about the Tulsa star, being a media entrepreneur yourself. The first question I have for you that I know popped in my head, what would you, if you got a chance to ask him, like, what would you ask him being that you're kind of getting into this arena as well? Well, right about now, I would ask him how to handle this situation of our story being so exploited. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Hey, that's a good, yeah, that's a question. I mean, it, it I mean, it's absolutely um, and I and I have a, you know, a kindred relationship to AJ because I cannot tell you how much we have in common um, that I didn't know until I started doing this research. And my and many of my family members feel the same way, learning more about him, like, oh, that's where I got it from, you know, because I come from many of the descendants and my and my family members, my cousins, my sis, my siblings, um, we're all driven to be active in our community we're all driven to make a difference to our race we're all driven to make a difference to the human race and just um make the planet a better place right make a difference be the change um so but what we didn't know is is just how much we earned it honest you know we got that from our big daddy <laughs> and he was so i i could you share your thoughts a little bit about his start and really wanting to get um, Black people's story from Black people, which is very important. And um, I also loved when you had a little insert talking about um, the Dreamland Theater. And, you know, seven. this is a 700-person theater in 1921. So can yes, you talk I a mean, little bit about that, those kind of facts that you found out? Yes, and actually that was a quote from another brother in the film, but um, it's definitely a fact. And uh, it, it was definitely a forum for AJ to speak at often, and he did. And that was a meeting place, a place for them to congregate, a place for him to um, hold court and to definitely make sure that the committees he was sitting on, that the people had the room to you know, do their town hall halls and um, so the Dreamland Theater served many purposes and my last name is Williams, of course, so I got to give it up to the Williams that own that, um, even though I don't know of any blood relation because I get my last name from another side of that family, uh, of my family, but I definitely uh, commend Lula Williams as such a female entrepreneur. I totally can feel her spirit, you know, in all of our bloods, all of our, all of our black female entrepreneurs blood, you know, um, it, it stemmed from people like herself. Yeah, it's just so fascinating just to find out, like you said, these little nuggets and things that we didn't know. Also, speaking of which, um, with your grandfather, I and I don't know if this was your quote exactly, but the uh, being the guardian of Black Tulsa and his his turn being like the first Democrat. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, it, when my great grandfather was um, he he's been the he was the Negro press 
association president for 11 years and that was a elected wow. official you know ele- elected position within the organization and they re-elected him 11 years consecutively starting before he even had the Tulsa star he was still in Muskogee working on the Muskogee cemetery at the time but his influence you want to talk about an influencer um he just he started to realize that the the um grandfather clause was being voted by you know was being voted for by republicans and republicans they would they they could just take the black vote for granted because lincoln was a republican and he had freed the slaves so blacks were all republicans like they were just you you couldn't find a black democrat really uh back then so but when he noticed that they were voting for the grandfather clause that made it hard for blacks to vote because you had to prove your grandfather voted in an 18, uh, an 1870, I forget the year, but it, literally, if you couldn't prove that your grandfather voted in the late 1800s, you, you couldn't vote for five years until the Supreme Court turned, you know, reversed the grandfather clause. But he started seeing that Republicans were actually voting to approve of the grandfather clause, even though that would mean it would make it hard for blacks to vote and they could count on the black vote. So he's like, oh, well, they're not right. really respecting our vote. And then Democrats would take for granted that they would never get the black vote because blacks never voted democratically. So he said, here's the problem. No one's fighting for our vote. No one's earning our vote. So until we diversify our vote, no one will. So he he literally put his career on the line, his life on the line, frankly, um, to move to Tulsa to start the first Democratic newspaper in America. And he approached the Democratic uh, chairman there in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and said, listen, if you make it easier for Blacks to vote, I will get you the Black vote. You will get the Black vote. And the the strategy worked. I mean, he called it his great experiment, and it was. And it was it, it, by, he started his newspaper in 1913, and by 1921, he had flipped the Black vote from, you know, Republican to Democratic. Um, so, you know, we look 100 years later at what Stacey Abrams has done in Georgia, and he right. did that 100 years. He, he's, he's the pioneer of doing that. He's the first person to ever do that in the country. Um, and he did that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, between 1913 and 1921. He, it was literally 100% Blacks voting for Republicans in 1913. And by 1921, over 50% of Blacks were voting democratically. Wow. It's just that when you put out the numbers and just thinking about the, the time period and the year that we're in and, you know, and it's also to some, some of the points you mentioned, just the fact of having the, the black community, you know, they're trying to insert their own dignity, you know, spending that the, the dollars within their own community at that time, mm-hmm. you know, before it was disrupted. What well, there's a was that a question for you where it's like, well, what was possible? Did that question kind of pop up to you as you're kind of sharing the story? And like you said, you've known from the beginning some of these facts. Well, what's the question you're asking me that that was possible? Is it always in your head? Because I know for me, I'm thinking about, well, what if this would have happened? Or what if this was still that moment? You know, is that always this right. was possible sort of thing when you look at the Tulsa race massacre? You know, of well, what are, you know, the different, what all the different black pioneers did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just in my own family, um, we're looking at a black Rupert Murdoch, 
you know, uh, potential. Mm. I mean, he was a he was a press mogul um, and not just a press pioneer, not just a political visionary. He was a real a real estate investor and owned property and lots of property, as a matter of fact. And we lost a lot as a family just from the perspective of generational wealth that could have been passed on. So seeing how my family has had to re, you know, uh, like, I would say reinvent ourselves, but just no, invent ourselves um, out of the ashes uh, that burned down Tulsa. We, I'm very proud of my family for what we've been able to accomplish under these circumstances. But can you imagine if those circumstances would not have existed, what we could, what, you know, where we could all be now? And so, yes, I've definitely imagined that. And not only have I imagined that, I've imagined it in a way that you imagine in a court of law when you're suing for damages. Right. Because that's important to say, you know, and, and this is just how we do in this country, right? We, we, we believe that if damages have occurred, um, then you owe damages. You know, there's yes. a real, there's a real popular word out there that starts with the letter R called reparations. But I think that that, and I don't have any problem with that word, by the way, but I'm saying in this specific case, we are talking about damages. Right. Absolutely. And it's just that's, the fact, that's, um, the, that's the legal right. term, you know? Yeah. Right. That's the legal term. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, I completely agree. And it's just the fact of being able to, and you know, a lot of those pioneers, a lot of our ancestors in that time period tried to, you know, I don't want to say in a sense, hide it. But when this happened, and there were people, there were survivors that fleed and left, a lot of this stuff, you know, was in a sense, not shared, you know, maybe to protect future generations. But you wonder, like you said, it's always that question of, well, if we knew about this, you know, could you have it over here? Or would it get shut down again? you know, getting, you know, the things that are owed to those black pioneers of that day, you know, a lot of them were surrounded by a lot of, you know, the oil and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's not always shared. Well, and one thing about it being surrounded by oil, and I just uh, heard a podcast today that just, you know, had misinformation, which stated that if it wasn't for the freedmen who lived in Muskogee in India, in territory. This was not Tulsa. You know, you, you didn't find Native Americans that were given land in Tulsa. or You didn't find Black freedmen that were given land in Tulsa. They were given land in Indian territory, which was Muskogee and, you know, places outside of Tulsa. So a lot of people have a myth and are perpetuating a myth that it's some land that was given to Blacks and to Black freedmen that made Greenwood. That's just false. The right. Greenwood, Greenwood was founded by uh, primarily two men who bought a lot of land, um, O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford. They came from different states, having made their money in different states and saw the opportunity in Tulsa and came and purchased land. Keyword purchased land. And then they only sold that land to blacks. And that's how Greenwood was developed. It was not because of land that was allotted to freedmen um, on Indian reservations. That's just, you know, and it, and it, it really, as you can tell, uh, disturbs me that that's a false narrative because it takes away from the fact that, no, these were Black men who were independently wealthy enough to purchase land. 
So, you know, right. how, how did they get in those positions? And don't discount that. Don't don't pretend like the government gave the land that created Greenwood. That's that's just incorrect. And it it, it it's not OK to to spread a false narrative. Um, so. Right. And definitely look up O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford. I want to uh, repeat those names again. So you guys definitely go check it out. Um, and when you're talking about like the Negro Guardianship League with some of the things that were brought up, the real breakdown of the Trail of Tears, some of that stuff was brought up. Like you said, just doing the research and really breaking it down. So there are not so many false narratives. Yes. And the Negro Guardianship League was in Muskogee once again, because that's where um that's where black freedmen and um, the, the Creek people, the Cherokee people, that's where they were given land. And that's where the racket was. And it was before AJ even moved to Tulsa in 1913, he was doing the expose of the racket way before that while he was still in Muskogee because that's where it was happening. And he called it the dispossession of black and Indian wealth because Native Americans were you know, referred to as Indians still at that time. So that's what was happening. And that was before he even moved to Tulsa. But yes, the Negro Guardianship League was formed after he prevailed in a court case, the very first time a black and this was a black creek, because another false fact, people have been calling my great grandfather a black creek as if he was given 160 acres of something. No, he was not. He was not a black creek. He I'm quite sure he was part Muscogee Creek, but he was in part enough to be a black, what was considered a black creek where you were given land. That's called, that was a freedman, many, you know, mm -hmm. in many cases. Some freedmen didn't have any creek. They were just slaves that had been brought on the, on the Trail of Tears, but some had mixed and were black creek. He was not that, considered that, you know. Um, so, and, and, it, and had he been, you know, um, he would have been allotted land and he was not. So there's just, you know, and even hearing the stories that people are putting out right now that I'm hearing as, it, as the movies come out and the podcasts come out, I can just tell you right now, I haven't heard one accurate uh, description of A.J. Smitherman outside of those testimonies that I've given of him. Well, we're glad you're here to set the, set the record straight because I want them to know. <laughs> I really want to know what he would have thought of. Like when I watch him, I want to know what he would have thought of Black Twitter, though, to be honest. Like, I'm so curious to oh know my what gosh, he would have well, thought of that. Well, here's the thing. It's so funny because I bought blacktwitter.com um, years ago um, and even developed a website of a, of a logo. And um, it's it's really interesting that, a hun you know, 100 years later, however, you know, his descendant, myself, is a dot com person. I, I, uh, I actually purchased the top 100 most searched terms dot com in 1996. That's why I'm a digital um, media person. And Twitter, what, what, what relates to what him to, to Black Twitter is that he had a newspaper where he would have these 140 character little tidbits about everything. Like if, right. you, if, you, if you look at his paper, he just would say um, these things in these short sentences at times just to put it out there like a thought. And, we, and it does remind you of Twitter because it's just short and sweet, but potent messages in his yes. paper amazing you know yes but i will also say just for the record that not only do i see him as kind of the original black twitter i also see him as the original google economy for blacks because what happened with google is it gave people a forum when they began advertising allowing advertisements and you know um you could advertise 
on Google. It be, it, people would form businesses, and I'm one of them, um, based on the ability to advertise to people. And when AJ formed the first black newspaper in Tulsa, people were, and, and it was also the first nationally black distributed newspaper, right? So he had a national spread. Right. So mm -hmm. people had an, all of a sudden had an opportunity to start a business because they can actually advertise to people. So he wow, started a, a whole economy of people who couldn't even uh, imagine reaching people until he started his newspaper there. Yeah, that is, it's just amazing. You guys definitely need to check out part one. It is out now on OWN if you got Discovery Plus as well. Raven, I do want to ask you, okay, going into the second part, coming out June 8th, what can you kind of, because I, I want everybody to go and make sure they pay attention and get it and get out, get all the facts. What can you kind of tease for us the second <laughs> part? You know what's coming because there was so, like I'm like you guys have no idea like you guys are probably just all the information Raven is giving right now I'm still reeling off of it if you guys go watch the documentary there are so many parts so many things you just don't know it's like they put the Tulsa race massacre in a little bubble and then tell you certain things certain facts that you want to go find out so Raven what can you kind of tell us about this next part well one thing I can say is that I'm dropping tears um, because it gets very emotional um, because we start to talk about you know what my family really went through that night of the massacre and that day wow. of the massacre, you know? So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. If you want to see me dropping tears, go ahead and check that out. Oh, uh, we don't want to see you dropping tears, but we appreciate no, you guys sharing the story. No, though. no, no, but no, <laughs> but I'm saying, I'm saying to be honest, well, here's the thing, not in a sensational way. I'm saying, if you want to see why we are in such pain as descendants. Right. So let me yes. put it that way. You know what I mean? If you, if that, because to me, that's what you're going to see in this next episode. Right. Right. And I can't, I, you guys, I will be glued to the screen. Let me tell you after this first part, you have no idea. You guys got to go check that out. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here. We'll kind of a little, a little bit of a switch with the, um, the AJ Smitherman foundation. Can you kind of talk about starting that? Like go back to that a little bit, how you started that up and, and kind of what your main mission for doing that was. Ultimately, um, a large part of the mission of the A.J. Smitherman Foundation is to create content that, again, sets the record straight, that tells the true authorized versions of the story that are correct, that are factually, historically correct, um, but also carrying on his legacy. I mean, my great-grandfather did so much for his community and his race and, you know, is a historical legend in terms of flipping the black boat because it's still flipped. You know, um, he, he, he was the first black Democrats and what are blacks primarily today? So, right. you know, we want to make sure to carry on that legacy of um, promoting not only what he did in the past, but we what we should be doing now in the present and what we can do in the future for future generations, which he was always um, someone who thought, you know, about, in fact, even his eulogy in his poem, he talks about unborn generations and the impact that this will have on them. So we're just carrying up, trying to, you know, pick up that torch and carry it. Um, and the A.J. Smitherman Foundation has every intention to make sure that people aren't exploiting this story, but instead are contributing to the foundation's desires to not only give scholarships to, you know, journalists and Anybody, you know, carrying that torch, um, we have a lot of aspirations 
And I will say it's, it's definitely something that we will be holding people accountable who are exploiting this story to contribute to at the least. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, man, it's just so many layers to this and, and, you know, just, just people ask questions and get the facts, right? Like get it straight, get everything laid out so we can see I mean, exactly he, what the know, story is. Yes. AJ Smithen was an investigative journalist who got, you know, at one point 38 people arrested for burning down homes in Dewey, which was a neighboring county to Tulsa, um, because he would just hold your feet to the fire. He would hold people accountable. He was an attorney. He was hopeful about the Constitution and the and the things that um, and the application of the laws. And so, unfortunately, you know, as as unfortunately, not everybody receives justice. And that's something that we just have to continue to fight for or else we we'll just continue to be people who don't get justice. Right. Yeah, it's very true. Very well said. Um, I want to ask you now. I read this now. I'm playing with fire because don't believe everything you read. But um, talking about, you know, as far as future looking forward and are you working on any kind of scripted, unscripted TV for the foundation to kind of push the story even more? I am. And uh, can't speak about that exactly right now, but. Not only am I working on it now, I've been working on it for seven years. And let me tell you, the very companies, many of the very companies that I've shopped this to turned me down and turned around and are doing it behind my back. But then, you know, but they're not going to ne- necessarily prevail with that mission. <laughs> right. You can, yeah, do, well you-, you, can, you can do something. It doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. And here's the thing. AJ dang sure would not have let them get away with it. Listen, well, I'm telling you right now, this is AJ spirit number two on this on this uh segment right now <laughs> so funny because through? my it's so funny because my my family sorry i had to take a sip of water my family um has said that like you channel him you know you yes you do spirit. you really do yeah when you hear his story you guys will know what i'm talking about she is channeling him right now and i can i appreciate the fight and i'm glad you joined me to set the record straight and to vent with me about this because yeah i had a whole bunch of questions after i watched the first part <laughs> well you know, in some ways, I feel like I've been working for this uh, culmination of events. I knew that the centennial would bring light to this story. So I started seven years ago in preparation to be ready for this day. And but what I've realized is that, man, as much as I thought it was going to be a culmination, shoot, we're just getting started. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just I hope it keeps going. And I'm so glad this is it should have been obviously as always it should have been brought out sooner. People should have known sooner, but I'm glad it's out now. And I hope you guys again, go check it out on own two-part documentary, the legacy of black wall street. Thank you, Raven so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. You too. Thanks for having us. And I'm glad you again, have this passion toward um, not only watching it yourself and, but sharing it with others. And I hope that your listeners share it with others too, because this is something that has been intentionally hidden. And so now we have to intentionally expose it exactly there you got you guys heard her so you guys better go check it out you know learn about aj smitherman learn about all these black pioneers that were part of this uh tulsa race massacre found out your facts and just you know go check it out support it and again thank you so much raven and i will talk to all of you guys later bye yeah oh go ahead raven go ahead i just want to say and where you can do that is ajsmitherman.com hey there you go ajsmitherman.com check it out So when you get off black Twitter, go (laughs) AJSmitherman.com. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye-bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. 
The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.